Hello and welcome to History Z, show number 16. In this show we'll be featuring the year 1706 and the Battle of Ramillies. And before that, in the magazine section of the show, we shall have a little piece on the phrase nose to the grindstone and a review of Lars Brownworth's new podcast, The Norman Centuries. But before even that, I just want to remind you of a couple of ways of getting in contact with me and with History Zine. I've just got a new Twitter feed going, a Twitter feed just for the show. The Twitter feed you'll find at twitter.com slash historyzine. Other ways you can get in contact are through the Facebook group. Just search for History Zine in Facebook, on the website, historyzine.com, or via email. You can email me at jim at historyzine.com. So, we better get on with things, because it's quite a long show this time. I know we had one comment on iTunes where a chap mentioned that he would be listening to the show and so that he'd hear the end of it, he'd have to drive the long way round to get home. Well, I don't want to make you drive too far this time, so I'm trying to keep it as short as possible. Off we go, and we'll start off with a review. And now, it's podcast review time. And the podcast I want to review for you this time is called Norman Centuries, and it's by a chap called Lars Brownworth. Now, Lars Brownworth was one of the earliest history podcasters I encountered with his magnificent series, 12 Byzantine Rulers. That podcast looked at the great and largely ignored history of the Byzantine Empire, that sparkling civilization formed by the division of the Roman Empire into East and West. The Roman Empire fell, but the Byzantines continued on for almost another thousand years, until Constantinople fell to the Ottomans in 1453. Now, that isn't the podcast I wish to talk about today, as Lars has now begun another series about yet another chunk of history, which is very much sidelined in the history books. This story begins with the Vikings in 911 in northern France, and continues until 1194. The first adventurer we encounter is known as Rollo the Walker, so named as he was too large for any horse to bear him. He was the leader of a band of raiders who mercilessly ravaged the Frankish lands year after year, only leaving when bought off with large amounts of gold. This policy only encouraged them to return time and time again, until the French king came up with an alternative policy, and handed them over a large chunk of land, which came to be known as the Duchy of Normandy. The Vikings soon adapted to this new land, and their strength grew as they became a curious mixture of French and Viking. Lars aims to tell their story as their influence extends throughout France, England, Italy, and even in the Byzantine lands themselves. It's a grand story, and the two episodes completed thus far give us a fine taster for the incredible event yet to unfold. This story is told in a simple and straightforward fashion. There's no music nor any other distraction to the story itself. But it is nonetheless exciting for this. Lars is a fine storyteller, and this is a marvellous story. If I were to criticise it at all, I might suggest that he doesn't make entirely clear the sheer brutality of the Vikings. These were large groups of marauders who preyed upon the weak and the helpless. Murder, rapine and robbery were not second nature 
but first to these people, and they struck fear into the vast majority of the peoples of Europe for centuries. Lars gives us a hint of this, but we get only a fleeting glimpse of the horror, and a more lingering look at the glories with which they clothed themselves. That aside, this is a tremendous podcast, and I await with excitement the continuation of this series. And now, History Zine's linguistic history trivia bit. This time we're going to cover the phrase, nose to the grindstone. The phrase, nose to the grindstone, is one that is familiar to many of us. We shake our heads, and with a weary sigh we pledge to put our nose to the grindstone and work long and hard to get this job done. If we were slacking off, someone might come to exhort us to put our nose to the grindstone, for without our applying ourselves to the task it may never be completed. But what is this grindstone of which people speak, and how do noses get involved in all of this? I'll start with the first example of this phrase in print. This comes from 1532, and was written by an incredibly earnest man named John Frith, in his work, A Mirror to Know Thyself. Here's the text. The bread of the needy is the life of the poor, and he that defraudeth himself of it is a murderer. This text holdeth their noses so hard to the grindstone that it clean disfigureth their faces. Hot stuff indeed. He doesn't pull his punches, this chap. John Frith was a Protestant reformer, espousing many of the theories of the Reformation but unfortunately for him they were a little too radical for their times, and he was burnt at the stake at Smithfields in London. In this text, he's using the grindstone as the focus of the matter in hand. We would have to focus on the task to get the job done, and so it doesn't look as if the meaning has changed very much at all in the last 500 years. But what is this grindstone? Well, I had a look round the net, And there are some references to millers and the grinding of corn, but I don't reckon anyone will put their noses near it, and it's usually referred to as a millstone rather than a grindstone. If we want something that is actually referred to by the name grindstone, then we'd be better looking at a chap who sharpens knives. He'll usually be sat down, bent forwards as he pedals to make the grinding wheel go round, and pushing a knife against that rotating stone wheel. Here we have all the elements. We have a grinding stone, and someone with their nose very close to it as he concentrates upon his work. It seems very likely that it's our knife sharpener who is the reference for this phrase, nose to the grindstone. There is, of course, a great deal of comedy value to the phrase, nose to the grindstone. And so, if you search for this phrase on the net, you'll find a number of pictures showing people with their noses literally being pressed against the stone. I've put one up on the blog at historyzine.com, and it doesn't look an entirely pleasurable experience. So there we are with our linguistic history trivia bit, and the phrase, nose to the grindstone. And just before we go to the main section, I'd better mention a little about the music that's at the start and the end of this show. I say I better mention, because I get asked more questions about the music on History Zine than anything else. So, the music this time was by a composer called Gustav Holtz. It's a 20th century piece written during the First World War. And the section I've been playing in this podcast is from the Mars movement of the Planet Suite. So that's Gustav Holst, the Planet Suite. And now it's time for the History Zine special feature, 
where we talk about the War of the Spanish Succession. This is the War of the Spanish Succession, a European war fought between France and Spain on one side, against the Dutch Republic, the Austrian Empire and England on the other. Louis XIV sits on the throne in France and Queen Anne in England. Joseph I is Holy Roman Emperor. The throne of Spain is the bone of contention in this war. The two claimants for the throne of Spain are Joseph's brother, the Archduke Charles of Austria, and Louis XIV's grandson, Philip. So, here we are in 1706. Last time we followed the Duke of Marlborough on his epic journey around Europe to set up the campaign for 1706 and ensure that the various leaders were prepared to commit the required number of troops. We also took a peek inside the happenings in Spain to see Charles, the Austrian claimant to the Spanish throne, and Lord Peterborough verbally battling between themselves as well as physically battling against the French and Spanish troops. They had held Gibraltar and Barcelona against concerted French attacks and were looking in a strong position to exert their power throughout Spain. We're going to stay with Spain for a little while to see what happens next. Thrown back in disarray from their attack on Barcelona, the French army were in bad shape indeed. Philip actually withdrew them from Spanish soil, and it looked like now Charles had a free hand to consolidate his power in Spain. There were three main Allied forces on the Spanish peninsula. There was Galway in Portugal, Peterborough in Valencia, and Charles himself in Catalonia. The next step was undoubtedly a triumphant march upon Madrid, the capital of Spain, and for Charles to secure the Spanish throne there. Marlborough wrote this to Lord Peterborough. When he mentions the king, he's speaking of Charles, the Austrian claimant to the Spanish throne. I have no doubt that your lordship has already escorted the king to Madrid, and take this opportunity to felicitate you on this glorious exploit, which is everywhere attributed to your valour and conduct. All the Allies exult in the advantages which are likely to result from this splendid success, and I particularly rejoice in the new luster which it will shed on your glory. After such astonishing actions, there is nothing we may not expect from you, so that I flatter myself you will not consider our hopes as ill-founded if we reckon upon the speedy reduction of Spain to the obedience of its legitimate sovereign since it seems as if Providence has chosen you to be the happy instrument, I heartily wish you all success till you have completed the great work. Now, unfortunately, the speedy reduction of which Marlborough spoke was not to happen. We've talked before of the volatile and abrasive nature of Peterborough, and this was to have rather a marked effect at this point. Both Peterborough and Charles were not on speaking terms with each other, especially after Peterborough's caustic comments regarding the Vienna crew, and neither were keen to be anywhere near the other. Charles decided he must travel on a rather circuitous route through Aragon, and Peterborough made no significant progress anywhere. His forces were dispersed throughout Valencia, and it wasn't until he received definite orders that he must move that he decided to set off but only took with him a few hundred dragoons. This can have only been in a fit of pique. It made no sense otherwise. Galway was having trouble with his Portuguese allies, and especially the Portuguese commander, Desminus. 
Das Minas was intent on laying siege to all manner of towns along the way, and so very little progress was being made there. Diplomatic pressure was put upon the Portuguese king, and eventually Galway and the Portuguese forces began to move toward Madrid. After all this messing about, we now have a French army around again to oppose these forces, and these are led by a brilliant general, who we know as the Duke of Berwick. Berwick is actually quite a close relation to the Duke of Marlborough. He was the illegitimate son of James II of England and Arabella Churchill. Now, Arabella is sister to John Churchill, and John is, of course, the Duke of Marlborough which makes Berwick Marlborough's sort of illegitimate brother-in-law. Now, you might be wondering what an English duke is doing leading a French army. Well, because of the close relationship between King James and the Duke of Berwick, when the Glorious Revolution occurred in 1688, Berwick went into exile with the ex-King James to France, and that's why we see him leading a French army here. Berwick was at the time outnumbered by Galway's army and so fell back towards Madrid, where he was joined by the French claimant to the Spanish throne, Philip, currently Philip V of Spain. They are also joined by reinforcements from Valencia and so now equal Galway's forces. They considered a battle, but knowing Peterborough might bring another 6,000 troops with him from Valencia, they abandoned the city and Galway entered a deserted capital on the 27th of June, there proclaiming Charles III, King of Spain and the Indies. Unfortunately, Charles was not there, and few others had stayed around for this proclamation. It was far from the establishment of power that Marlborough had envisaged. Meanwhile, Berwick had retired to Catalonia, and played upon the traditional enmity between the Spanish and the Portuguese to whip up a fury at having such a large army of Portuguese soldiers on Spanish lands. Troops flocked to Berwick, and soon his army had grown to around 25,000. Galway had finally managed to get Charles and Peterborough to join him at Madrid, but Charles arrived with a mere 5,000 men instead of the 8,000 expected, and Peterborough only a few hundred it became evident that they were outnumbered, and so they left Madrid with not a shot fired. Peterborough laid the blame of this failure firmly at the feet of Charles, but must have known he had performed poorly. He made a pretense at having to visit the Duke of Savoy to see about some troops, and departed the arena. The other commanders were more than happy to see him go. Those who were interested may wish to research a little more into the journey of Peterborough to Genoa, it's a rollicking adventure yarn in itself, full of brigands, robberies, and the sparkling personality of Peterborough, beguiling all those with which he comes into contact. Unfortunately, we're not going to follow this adventure. It distracts us over much from more momentous events, and these concern Marlborough's campaigns in Belgium during the year 1706. We must roll back time a little now to earlier in the year. The Duke of Marlborough had intended a major campaign in Italy in the year 1706. His winter tour of Europe had helped secure pay for the troops there and significant Prussian forces to reinforce the armies of Prince Eugène, who commanded the Allied armies in Italy. The French commander in Italy, Vendôme, 
mobilised his armies in March and took the Imperial Army by surprise, inflicting a serious defeat upon them at Calcinato. This removed their capacity for offensive action at the moment. The Margrave of Baden also suffered a serious defeat on the Rhine from the French General Villa. He had retreated inside the fortress of Landau, and it looked as if this very significant stronghold might soon be taken by the French. In light of this, the leaders of the Dutch Republic made Marlborough an offer. They would send 10,000 men to help in the Italian campaign if he would agree to stay and command the Dutch armies in Flanders. They also agreed to give him a greater freedom of movement as regards the command of those armies. It was probably this latter which clinched the deal, as Marlborough had suffered much under the constraints of the Dutch deputies, and must have felt he could achieve a great deal with this larger freedom of movement. Three new Dutch field deputies were now assigned to Marlborough, with instructions to obey the Duke, and with no prohibitions against fighting a battle. Marlborough had guessed that there would be serious offensive action from the French in Italy, and upon the Upper Rhine, even if he hadn't expected it so early in the season. What happened next, though, was completely unexpected. The Duke received news that the French troops were seen massing upon the south side of the Deal River, and immediately he hoped that this would be his opportunity to bring them to battle. What he didn't know was Louis had given strict instructions that this is exactly what they must do. Blenheim must have been a fluke, he felt, and Marlborough must now be properly tested in the field and thoroughly beaten. Soon, the Duke heard that the French army had crossed the deal and were now close to Tourlemont, now known as Tiennen. There was now a flurry of activity and letters were sent out as Marlborough hurriedly gathered his troops together. There are many of these letters still in existence and we can get some idea of his excitement from their tone. As in this one, this is to Harley, who was one of the more significant ministers back in England. The enemy, having drained all their garrisons, and depending on their superiority, passed the deal yesterday, and came and posted themselves at Tyrolmont, with the Geat before them. Whereupon I have sent orders to the Danish troops who are coming from their garrisons, to hasten their march. I hope they may be with us on Saturday, and then I design to advance toward the enemy, to oblige them to retire, or with the blessing of God, to bring them to a battle. As you can see, he's not certain of a battle. In those times, troops moved so slowly, it was almost impossible to take anyone by surprise. It was also all too easy just to move out of the way if you didn't wish to engage. Marlborough was hoping that the French would choose to stay and fight. And he didn't know about the French king's instructions to Villeroy that Villeroy should be looking to act offensively against Marlborough to regain some of the French pride which had been lost at Blenheim. The Duke gathered his army between Bourloin and Cossoiren, and by nightfall on the 22nd of May 1706 he had gathered 62,000 troops ready to face a French army of 60,000. He felt that this would be enough to ensure victory. It's interesting here to note these figures and compare them with the troops we mentioned earlier in Spain. A little later in the year, on the Spanish peninsula, we would have a French army of 25,000 facing an Allied army of about 17,000. 
the difference in scale is very large indeed. And yet, if Spain is what everyone is really fighting about, then you'd expect the war to be concentrated there. It seems this is not the case. Maybe it's something to do with the French and the Dutch fighting so much closer to home in Flanders, and therefore they have potentially more to lose if things go awry. So, it's the night of the 22nd, going into the morning of the 23rd of May. Marlborough's heard the French are on the move. They've crossed the Great Geet and are moving towards the Judonia. He began to move his army toward them and sent out his right-hand man, Carrigan, to scout ahead. They encountered the French much closer than they expected, already on the plain, around the village of Ramillet. It's here, I wish to quote, from a Bavarian general who was fighting on the side of the French. This is de la Colonie, who wrote a book entitled The Old Campaigner, talking about the French army arrayed on that plain. So vast was the plain at Ramillet that we were able to march our army on as broad a front as we desired, and the result was a magnificent spectacle. The army began its march at six o'clock in the morning, formed into two large columns, the front of each consisting of a battalion. The artillery formed a third, which marched between the two infantry columns. The cavalry squadrons in battle formation occupied an equal extent of ground, and there being nothing to impede the view, the whole force was seen in such a fine array that it would be impossible to view a grander sight. The army had but just entered on the campaign. Weather and fatigue had hardly yet had time to dim its brilliancy, and it was inspired with a courage born of confidence. The late Marquis de Goudron, with whom I had the honour to ride during the march, remarked to me that France had surpassed herself in the quality of these troops. He believed that the enemy had no chance whatsoever of breaking them in the coming conflict. If defeated now, we could never again hope to withstand them. Marlborough arrived on the battlefield and began to deploy his troops. It's necessary now for me to try and give you a mental picture of the battlefield, so you can try and figure out what's happening during the events to come. The French are arrayed in a concave arc, with the centre furthest away from their opponents, and two horns on either end protruding forwards. The battle front is some four or five miles along. On the French left is the village of Autreglis. In front of this position are the streams which lead into the river Geet. This is difficult country to cross, and very swampy indeed. Horses, in particular, would have difficulty crossing the ground here. The next village, toward the centre of the French position, is Orphus. This is still protected by the beginnings of the river Geet in front of it, and yet again, there's very difficult ground to cross. Ramelais is the next village along, and this is just right of centre of the French lines. This is much easier ground, and therefore ideal for cavalry action. On the French right are two villages, Franquenet and Tavier, as well as the river Mahenia, running down the furthermost flank. So there we have the French Bavarian Spanish army arrayed in a huge arc from Autoglis on one side and abutting the river Mahenia and Franquenet on the other with the village of Ramelais in the centre. Troops are fairly evenly dispersed throughout, 
but the pride of the French, the Maison de Roi, the French royal household troops, are posted on the French right. From Ramillet to the Mahenia is obviously the most likely area for any cavalry action, the ground being unsuitable elsewhere, and this is where the Maison de Roi are situated to withstand such attacks. Marlborough and his advisers stared down at these dispositions, and it was immediately obvious that the French left was a very difficult prospect to attack. There were hedges, ditches, and swamplands galore. Almost everyone was of one mind in concluding there was little point mounting an attack upon the left end of the French lines around Autoglise, and urged Marlborough to place most of his troops on the side facing the French right and centre. The Duke ignored this advice, and weighted each wing more or less equally. The battle began at around one o'clock in the afternoon, with an exchange of artillery fire. It should be noted here that the Allies carried with them far heavier and more numerous artillery than the French. Now, artillery wasn't as important then as it became in years to come, but it's possible that it played quite a significant part in this battle. The Allied army advanced, and the first attacks seemed to be going in towards Autoglise and the French left. Lord Orkney was moving rapidly forward with bridging equipment, infantry, and even dismounted cavalry, leading their horses through the marshy ground. Villois, only a few weeks earlier, had received a letter from Louis the Fourteenth, which stated, it would be very important to have particular attention to that part of the line which will endure the first shock of the English troops. The French king was all too often inclined to send advice to his marshals. Villois was transfixed by the movement of these troops, and also a little bit excited at the possibilities this offered. Orkney's troops would be struggling through the marsh, and then emerged tired and bedraggled on the slopes, stretching up toward the space between Autoglis and Ramillies. Villois quickly transferred large numbers of cavalry to this area in preparation for this decisive blow against Lord Orkney and the Allied soldiers. He also transferred himself, the Elector of Bavaria, and the French High Command to this point, to keep a close eye on the action. The more astute among you will have already seen the problem here. Villois has taken his French troops away from that area of battle most suited to cavalry action and posted them on his left. This was exactly what Marlborough had been hoping for. Meanwhile, at the other end of the line on the French right, the Allies are attacking the two villages of Tavier and Francournay. Events moved very quickly here, and the villages, which had seemed quite well fortified, were swiftly overwhelmed. It seems likely the success may owe much to the large guns brought to this position by the Dutch guards. The walls and houses were quickly smashed, and the Allies took control of the villages. These villagers should have protected the French right, and now that flank lay exposed to the fire of the Allies. It was a grievous loss indeed. 
Marlborough had distracted the French high command with what looked like the most important attack being sent in on the French left, and then moved in fast on their right, now threatening those French cavalry which were still there. The French high command soon realised the seriousness of the problem and sent in large numbers of troops to try and regain those villages. Unfortunately, those troops didn't wait for each other to begin the action, so their efforts were somewhat piecemeal. In addition to this, the Dutch battalions, which had taken Tavier and Franquenet, were very quickly backed up by the Danish cavalry, which had been held slightly behind the lines in order to be swiftly deployed at any part of the battle. These Danes swept down upon the dismounted French dragoons sent to retake the villagers and inflicted huge numbers of casualties. Allied troops were left to hold these villagers, and the cavalry set free to wreak havoc among the French. They wheeled to the right to attack the flank, what were considered to be the finest troops of the French army. These were the Maison de Roi, the French royal household troops. This section of the battlefield on the French right, between Ramelay and Tavier, was the key to the whole battle. Marlborough had foreseen this, and now sent word to Orkney to call off his attack on the French left. Time and time again he sent instructions, and time and time again Lord Orkney ignored these orders, thinking they had been sent in error. He thought maybe Marlborough and the High Command didn't really realise what progress he was making in these attacks. And true enough, he had made remarkable progress indeed, despite the incredible difficulty of the terrain. Marlborough hadn't told Orkney that his attack was merely a feint, and indeed the ferocity with which he pursued that assault left little doubt in the minds of the French that this was a very significant assault indeed. Eventually, though, he was convinced to withdraw, and retired to a hill looking across the little geat towards Utreglis. The front ranks maintained their position there, but many of the troops slipped over the rise of the hill and out of the sight of the French moved down the lines to join the Allied troops facing the French right and centre. They would and did join in the main thrust of the Allied attack up toward Ramelay itself. The French still expected another attack on their right and so they left their reinforcements in position there. Marlborough's troops now heavily outnumbered those of the French in the centre, and the main attack began. The brave men of the Maison de Roi were there to take the brunt of this attack, and looking on from a holding position was the old campaigner himself, with his Bavarian troops. I'm going to let the old campaigner describe this decisive movement on the battlefield. I saw the cavalry of the enemy's left wing march to attack the Maison de Roi, followed by their infantry in slow time. And I was able to distinguish to perfection the great number of squadrons they had detailed for this assault. The enemy advanced in four dense lines, like solid walls, while we had but three lines, the third of which was composed of several squadrons of dragoons, with plenty of gaps between them. As I have already said, we had not reconnoitred the ravines which separated our left from their right. They were found impracticable, and consequently no important action took place thereabouts. The Allies 
who knew the ground well, had concentrated the bulk of their forces to attack our right, which consisted of the Maison de Droit, in whom we had placed, perhaps, too much faith. That they were the pick of the French army cannot be denied, but they were crushed by force of numbers. The enemy's infantry, which connected with their cavalry and extended as far as the centre of their line of battle, had been reinforced in a similar manner, so that their right flank was much denuded of troops and remained almost immobile. Besides this, the precaution had been taken to post a corps in reserve some distance in rear to ensure the destruction of our right flank, and in this array the enemy confidently made sure of victory before even the action had actually begun. I now saw the enemy's cavalry advance upon our people, at first at rather a slow pace, and then when they thought they had gained the proper distance, they broke into a trot to gain impetus for their charge. At the same time, the Maison de Roi decided to meet them, for at such a moment those who await the shock find themselves at a disadvantage. But what a contrast was shown in the melee that resulted. The enemy, profiting by their superiority in numbers, surged through the gaps between our squadrons and fell upon their rear, whilst their four lines attacked in front. Naturally, our right was soon crushed. I noticed a number of riderless horses making their escape, and in a short time the rout became general. The enemy took our lines in flank, rode them down, and completely routed them. This is a splendid description here from this Bavarian fighting on the side of the French, and he's told the tale pretty well. However, things didn't go quite as smoothly as the old campaigner is suggesting. There were many tense moments for the Allies as they pushed forward on that plain. The Maison de Roi were a formidable bunch, and interspersed between the French cavalry were infantrymen whose barrage of fire actually brought the Allied advance to a halt. Marlborough knew this was the crucial point of the battle, and so rushed forward to rally the troops and urge them onwards. Yet again the French cavalry pushed back at the Allied advance, and Marlborough found himself unhorsed and in imminent danger of capture. Major General Murray, with his two Swiss battalions, immediately moved them forward to assist the Duke, and he ran back amongst their ranks, with the French in hot pursuit. They rode after him so furiously that many were unable to pull up their horses in time and found themselves impaled upon this mass of Swiss bayonets waiting for them. The Duke's aides gathered around him and Marlborough was quickly given another horse so he could continue to gather his troops and push them back upon their foe. The Duke had several mounts and another of his own horses was brought for him by his equerry, Colonel Bringfield. The colonel held the duke's stirrup as the duke remounted, and it was said a shot whistled underneath the duke's raised leg and killed the poor unfortunate colonel outright. Although one feels great sympathy for the colonel, it has to be said that had that ball hit the duke instead of him, then the fate of the Allies in this war may have been rather different. There was no time to grieve or ponder, though, as the situation was still tense, the French were proving extremely resilient in this the largest cavalry battle of which there is any reliable record. However, numbers began to tell, and the flanking manoeuvre by the Danish cavalry turned the tide. Villeroy had at last realised 
there was no danger on his left, and so wheeled his troops around to join the battle around Horamele. It was far too late. The troops there had begun to break, and very quickly large numbers were fleeing the battlefield. The Duke now committed his entire force, and the French were hotly pursued for many miles until they were entirely defeated. The French army lost around 15,000 men killed and wounded on the battlefield that day, and about another 15,000 were taken prisoner. The Allied troops lost only around 2,500 men. This was an astounding victory of simply enormous proportions, and it had some very significant ramifications. However, I am all too well aware that this has been a long episode, so we'll look at some of the aftermath of this battle in the next episode of History Zine. So until next time, bye for now. <laughs>